All right, everybody, we're going we're gonna to get started. So we are in Genesis. And um, I'm not plugging this because I, I want you to go back and listen to, to my sermons because I think that they are excellent. That's not my heart here. What I'm saying is if you want to stay in the series and, and see what we preached in Genesis 1, um, get, a, get a big cup of coffee for that one. Uh, that's a longer one. But, um, but it does keep the series in line so that you can see what was preached because we want to keep everything in continuity. Everything must stay in context. If it doesn't stay in context, then it's not going to actually be true and applicable. And so we're in Genesis chapter 2, and today we're going to be in verses 4 through 18. The original plan was to do 4 through 25, but once we hit 18, God creates woman, and I'm just telling you, everything changes at that point, okay? Uh, here's what I want to look at whenever God creates woman. So we're going to stop today with the good of God creating woman and what he was intending, but then next week in 18 through 25, I want us to look at marriage, because in 18 through 25, that's where God institutes marriage. And so God was, or man was no longer alone, and so that changes. So now there's, there's, God and, or there's God and man and woman. And then we, I want to dive a little bit more into really the, the, the picture of marriage because whenever we get to the New Testament, we actually find out that, that this marriage in this life is actually momentary. And it's actually a picture of Jesus and the church. And so I want to start next week in Genesis Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. But then we're going to kind of go a little bit deeper into what marriage really is. And this isn't going to be, just so you know, this is not going to be five ways to have a healthier, happier marriage. This is going to be, here's what God created and instituted. There are biblical roles for the, the husband and the wife and the children within that. But really, it's you know, part of such a greater, bigger picture. And whenever I remember the bigger picture... That, that marriage is really not about uh, chastity and I finding our, our happiest life together and, and one day like just finally being retired and traveling. It's not about that at all. That what it really comes down to is that God gave us this picture so that we can understand Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And whenever I begin to think on that, then man, it is so much easier for me to die to self. It really is. Marriage takes on a whole new scope and it all begins in the Garden of Eden. So that's, that's why we're going to stop at 18 today. Okay? And then next week is going to be about marriage, but it's not going to be the uh, philosophical view of marriage or um, you know, how to in, improve your marriage or anything like that. It's going to be, here's what Scripture says about marriage. And then we let God do the work as we kind of dive into that. All right, so here we are in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 18. And, and the title of this one, y'all, is... In the beginning, God and man and goodness. I think that we tend to look around at the world and we go, oh man, this place is a wreck. Let's get called back to the goodness of what God created. So Genesis 2, verse 4 through 18. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. And the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So, y'all, that's our text. And remember, we're, you know, we're going back to Genesis because in Genesis is the beginning of everything. Like the, the title Genesis literally means in the beginning. So you go to Genesis 1.1, it says in the beginning. That's Genesis. So in the beginning of everything that you and I take hope in, that we rest in, that we believe to be true, everything about the gospel, it's all rooted in Genesis. It all begins in Genesis. So whenever Moses was writing this, he was writing a history for the Israelites. And that's part of, part of why he says Eden that was in the east, probably because wherever Moses was writing it, Eden was to the east of wherever he was writing. All right, so Moses was writing this to a real people in a real time, a real context. God has sustained this for us right now, and I'm telling you, this is part of our history as well. We sit here today because Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation is applicable and true and necessary for us as well. So, what I want us to wrestle with is this. Number one, well here, tell you what, there's one point and four subpoints. Okay, so you look at it's five points, but, but they go fairly quickly, and they all fit into this. The, the big point is that all that God intended for man was good. Everything that he did in his original creation was good and was for man's good. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see how everything that he did was simply for good. And here's why I think that's important, because one day we will be with him again, and when we're with him again, this goodness will be what we're back in. This goodness is what has been broken. And so if we hear that everything that God did was good, and then we look at creation, and I'm, I walk outside into the, you know, the muggy, humid weather, and there's mosquitoes, and then we also hear sirens rolling through town, we can probably sit there and go, how in the world was this ever all good? You know, everything that God intended for man was good. That's what Genesis 2 tells us. So I think we need to... We need to step back because whenever we come to Genesis, we, and I'm just repeating this from last week, we tend to come into it with, well, how did God do it? You know, how did, how did he do this and, and why did he do it? And what we looked at last week was he did it because he wanted to do it because he's God and he can. Like, that's it. There's so many mysteries that we were never meant to solve and that's okay. In Genesis 2, let's also not get caught up in, well, how did God create man? How did he bring him to this point? You know what I know is this, that God did it and everything he did was good. Everything else is a mystery and we don't have to solve it. 
So I want us to, to consider that, that God was good. Everything he did was good. Everything is good. In his creation, it was good. In his placing of Adam, who was a good man, and he placed him in the garden, that was good. His giving of Eve was good. His provision for food and comfort was good. His restriction to not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil was good. Every verse and every passage of Genesis 2 tells us that every intention of God towards man was good. We chose evil. He designed good. And so if, if in Genesis 1-1 it's how we saw everything came to be, then I think Genesis 2-2 is how everything should be. There will be a day whenever we are face-to-face with our God. And that, will, that day, whenever it comes, it will be a day that never ends. And it's going to be a unique heaven and earth where it tells us that there, there is no sun because God is our sun. His radiance will fill the new earth and the new heaven. There's a, a verse that even says that, that there will be a mighty throng of people and that there will be no ocean in the new heaven and the earth because God's glory and people will fill the new earth. Like there's such a different world that you and I have been destined for by the blood of Christ and it's such a different world that he created through him and through Christ and we're living in the not yet. The not yet fully consummated and the world that God created in Genesis 2.2, this is y'all how, this is how it should be. And so I want us to read this again and study it with humble expectation of seeing that God's absolute goodness. And one day we will see him face to face. So y'all, let's look at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7. Again, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, just so y'all know, okay, so you know what this shows us? That a good God is forming a good man out of the good earth. Like, it's all good. There's no corruption. There's no sin. A good God forming good man out of a good earth. That's like my, my topic or my header that I have here for these verses. Good God forming good man out of good earth. Okay, so you might not be familiar with this, but there is this mindset that Genesis chapter 2 contradicts Genesis chapter 1. I worked in a school for almost a decade, and it was a common thought among students and some of the teachers there that Genesis 1 which details all the days of God's creation, and Genesis 2 were actually in direct contradiction. And if they contradict one another, then they cannot literally be true, and therefore it was all myth and speculation. And I think that that's just a misunderstanding based on a misreading of it. Nothing in, in chapter 2 actually contradicts chapter 1. Chapter 1 is, is a, a chronicle of what God did on each day. Chapter 2 is zooming in on day 6. Chapter 2 is really looking at day 6 whenever God creates man. So it doesn't contradict. Chapter 2 fits in to chapter 1. And why in the world would God inspire Moses and carry Moses along to write these words? I think it's because we have to remember how good our God is. Because this world is weighty enough. It's dark enough. And sometimes we can get those polluted thoughts where we're like, is God really for me? 
the Israelites who, who were uh, led out of Egypt and they, they traversed the wilderness and they're having to now fight for, for their land that they're going to be occupying. They have to be wondering at certain moments, is God really good? Why in the world is he doing what he's doing? And Genesis 2 says, yes, he's good and it's always been good. So I want to just kind of put that misunderstanding to the side. If Genesis 1 is wide sweeping, then, then Genesis 2 is the play-by-play that God gives us of how he did this. But, but I'm not going to break down every verse and every word in, in all these passages. But if you read um, those verses again um, in 4 through 7, y'all, the world was vastly different. There was no rain. I mean, a week of rain is what we just had. And that was pretty miserable, not going to lie. Can't imagine Noah's uh, 40 days of rain. I mean, that would just be really depressing. Not, nonetheless, you know, everything's getting buried in that one. But, um, but after a week of rain, to try to imagine a world where there was no rain. Instead, in the original creation, there was just a mist that would hover over the ground. And it was a mist that was dense enough to saturate everything fully enough that vegetation would continue to sprout out. I just want you to remember that this is a different world. Just kind of keep those things that in God's good creation, it looks different than what we know. The world that we see, it's been corrupted by sin. And, you know, we're not there in the text yet. That's chapter three. That's whenever sin enters the picture. But, but right now it's just a different world. But all of the radical weather patterns we see now and all the harshness of nature did not exist I hate working in a garden in our front yard. Number one, I think it's futile. I think that the plants are going to die, right? I don't see the point in planting an annual because I'm just going to have to replant another one. I want something that continues to live, continues to grow. But what I really hate are rose bushes. They are pretty, but they got thorns. And thorns and thistles were not part of the original design, is my point. Like, nothing that's harsh or negative or bad or radical about weather was part of that beginning of the that that um, beginning Earth. None of the danger, none of the destruction. Everything was really designed, and God could um, God put man in it so that He could live in just perfect harmony with everything. All right, but look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Oh, this, is, this is the knowledge of ourselves that we actually need. I think that this is something that we should, should really focus on and pay attention to. Whatever congregation we sit in, whatever profession we go into tomorrow, wherever it is that we are, whatever family context, we have to remember that God created us from dust. We are of dust. We didn't form ourselves and we cannot. There's no way that we can create something out of nothing. This is a great reminder to us that we are God's people created by him. So just a reminder that you're going to hear throughout Genesis over and over is he is God and we are not. And praise the Lord. Right. We were never meant to be him. And yet there is this searching and this posturing of our heart where where we like to believe that we can become like God or we can, we can be God of our own life and we will always find that that's frustrating. But life began in God. You know, all of science has been searching how and where did life begin? And I'm fascinated by that, not going to lie. Like I read the articles because I'm interested to see to what depths we will go. 
but we will search the expanse of heaven and we will search the depths of the sea and scientists will never find this one truth, which comes back to this. And it's this, that life began in God, by God, and it's because he gave us the breath of life. So we are of dust. And the original language there, look at the word formed. The original language, it's really cool if you look into it. That refers to a master craftsman at work shaping a work of art. I am not a master craftsman. I can't draw. I can't, if you give me a piece of wood and a, and a knife, then I can't whittle anything. I can't create a pot. I can't do a work of art with paint. Um, I thought that I did well one time. I had a canvas and Chas and I did this date night where we like, you know, they go teach you how to draw something. And so it was this white barked tree with fall leaves at the top of it. And I remember my mother-in-law singing and going, oh, is that a rocket ship? Because it was upside down. So I, I can't paint either, okay? But have you ever stood in awe of someone who can craft? And you see what they're creating. And that's the original term for formed there. That here is a master craftsman. Here is God at work perfectly creating the human body with such complexity that we're still discovering new parts of our body where it's always been a mystery. And he formed it perfectly. And it's this masterful creation that God says, and you get to bear my image in this world. That's who we are. Now, there's this. Sin has corrupted this masterful creation that God gave us. And it's why Jesus came in the flesh and bore the wrath of God on our behalf, because this sin has corrupted the, the masterful creation of who we are. And Jesus took upon himself the full penalty. His flesh was ripped and beaten and marred to the degree that Isaiah says that Jesus was not even in the semblance of humanity anymore. That if you were to see, according to Isaiah, if you were to see Christ on the cross, he no longer looked human because he had been beaten so badly. We can't depict that in a movie. They tried in Passion of the Christ and they rated it R um, because it was so brutal and yet they still couldn't go to the depths of what reality actually was in the death of Christ. But that masterful creation of mankind that God formed um, and that Jesus took on was completely destroyed by the punishment as Christ bore the penalty for our sins. Just kind of showing you, hey, here's how it all began. And it be reaches a point of corruption that here's how God has to break down the corruption. But Jesus did bear the punishment before our holy God. And it's this Jesus, y'all, who is resurrected now and is seated on high. He's the one who Ephesians chapter 2 says that we have been recreated in Jesus Christ. So the masterful work that God did in Genesis chapter 2 that we see in verse 7, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 that we've been recreated. We are now his workmanship again in Jesus Christ. So what God began as good and sin corrupted, Jesus Christ has made good again. And we have to traverse a corrupted world, but one day we will be in that full and good and perfect unity. Right now we're in the not yet, but one day we will be. But there is something really neat in the parallels that God calls out. But we were created by God. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus. And we have to remember to take hope in this. Psalm 103 says that God, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. Do you know why I think pride gets puffed up in us? Because we forget that we're just dust. I will die one day. It's going to happen. That's not morbid. I'm not trying to be like a downer. I'm just trying to be legit and real. I will die. 
And so everything that I've spent my 70, 80, 100, 135, who knows, I might be that guy. You know, it'd be cool. I'm pretty competitive. Okay, but, but whenever that point comes, all that I've lived for here on this, on this earth really will be eventually forgotten except by God. My kids will remember. My great-grandkids will probably hear stories. Hope they're the good ones. But I will return to dust. But the full account of my life will be remembered and known and recorded by God. So that which he created and that which he gave us, how will we spend our time? So God does not forget we're dust. We do. We forget we're temporary. We forget that life is so absolutely short. And where the world would say, because it's short, you should, you should live to your full indulgence. You should take every opportunity right now. The Christian looks at it and says, because my life is short, how much more can I make of Christ before I die? It's a totally different tenor of life for us. But what a great humbling would, would take place if we would just put our hearts back in that position. God, I'm but dust. What would you have of me today? It was good that we were made of dust. It's good that, that there was a limit to who we are. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Uh, the heading I put for me was, The good God provides a good place for good man. Right? See, he's still good. Man is still good. And now he provides a good place. Listen to this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden was a place, y'all. And then there's a garden that's within Eden. So it will become the garden of Eden. But right here you see it's the garden in Eden. And it's in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. I'm going to pause right there. I've walked into a, a nursery because Chas and I really did try to work in our garden, you know, like a, a month or so ago. And we walked in and I was amazed. I mean, there's just beautiful flowers everywhere. And then I uh, asked the lady, I'm like, what's that one? She goes, well, that's an annual. So I don't, never mind, I'm out. I need the, I need the, what are they? The perennials, the ones that'll keep coming back. And we went in there and while they were pretty, they weren't as pretty and there weren't as many. Um, but just imagine that, like that sight you see whenever you see a garden full of lush life and you see these flowers that are just, they are, they're beautiful. You see these plants that, that not only smell nice, but they have like just a, a different tapestry about them. Every good tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food, God put it in this garden. Why? Because he put man there. It says that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it starts talking about the rivers that flowed out of Eden. And I'm not going to break all of those down. We've already read them. But here's what we do get out of that. I'll tell you, some scientists and archaeologists are trying to figure out where exactly did we put Eden? Like, where is it mapped out? That's fascinating. I don't care. I'm just not, I'm not going to lie. My, my life is too short to, to just be like, oh, they finally found Eden because we're not going to find it. We can speculate, but we're not going to find it. Here's what I find amazing about this. Look at God's original creation. There's land where there is gold. And then there's all these precious metals and precious minerals and jewels. Like God's creation was rich and lush and beautiful. And the rivers are going to all these different locations that the Israelites would have known. Okay. But, but here's what I also think is neat with those rivers real quick. All right. So if, if we're the Israelites and we're thinking back, we're like, man, that's a beautiful place. But then we, with the full Bible before us, we can start thinking of the tabernacle, right? Which was a beautiful place of gold and precious jewels where God would meet man on earth. 
And then we can go all the way to Revelation where the new heaven descends upon the new earth and the, the, the description is that it is beautiful and there are precious stones and the gates and it's covered in gold and it's where God and man will be together. The Garden of Eden gives us a foretaste of the models where God will be with man and his place and his dwelling place is always good and rich and beautiful and lush with life. I just think that's absolutely cool. If you don't, that's okay. You still had to hear me say it. All right, but I do want you to kind of picture that. But remember, what begins in Genesis, we see pictures of it all throughout. And one day we see the perfect picture. There was Adam in the beginning, but then there's the perfect Adam in Jesus Christ. And we see these parallels all throughout because God is wise and he knows what he's doing. But y'all, I think that what really struck me in reading that part about God creating a good place for a good man is this. I think that this is what we actually long for. This is why we're always trying to recreate beauty in our homes and in the places we go. That's why whenever we, we walk upon a natural landscape and we just stand in awe, there's something of Eden that is echoing in our hearts because it was there where everything was good and somehow we know that. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts, but not so much in a way that we could figure it all out. I think we have Eden echoing within us. We know somehow what it was supposed to be like. And we know that one day we will taste it. And in the meantime, there's a longing. There is a deep longing to have that again. Y'all, we know that man was cast out of the garden, but here's what I find absolutely amazing is that God would then come out of the garden and out of the tabernacle and pursue us. All right. But there is something, I, I, it just made me say, Wow. And you will say wow on this one too, okay? Look at, you probably won't, but I like to believe you will. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word puts what we're going to look at. Verse 15, right? Because it's like Moses said that, and he's like, by the way, you got to know what this place was like. And then he describes the rivers. And he comes back in 15, he says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the word put is where I just kind of went, man. That's just awesome. For us, it's the word put and put. In verse 8 and verse 15, it's the same word because in our English translation, we can't touch what the original word actually meant. In verse 8, in verse 8, it's the regular word for put. Like, I'm going to put my Bible over here. I'm going to put my phone right over there. It's just the regular word in verse 8. In verse 15, it's not. In verse 15, the word put in the original language is usually reserved for God, and it refers to, I want to make sure I get it here, um, the original term for put in verse 15 where it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. The word for put was used to refer to God's rest and safety. So in verse 8, it just says, hey, God put him over there. And then he begins to, to describe the rivers. And then in verse 15, if you look at the original language, it's a different word for put. In other words, God placed man very intentionally for his safety and for his rest in the garden. Like, I thought that he put him there to work it. Because it says, you're going to work the land, right? But it says, actually, if you know that, that language, what should actually be happening for us is that the, God really did create a good place for the goodness of man, and he put him there so that everything would be good for him. That's why he made every tree to grow. That's why he placed him there, so that he would be safe and so that he could actually rest. 
I just went wow on that one. Y'all are kind of like, that's cool, Ricky, big, big deal. But no, really, just keep that in mind. That he didn't, he didn't put him there to restrict him. He put him there to protect him. Mankind moved out from the provision of God, and we stepped out from his goodness. Always keep that in mind. Y'all look at verse uh, 16 and 17. This is a shorter point, but I think it's definitely worth it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of, the gar- every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Y'all, just a quick note. In our sinfulness, this is where this comes from. In our sinful nature, we see authority in a negative sense. In a scriptural, redeemed mindset, we should see authority in a positive sense. Right, So I've talked to people, well, God just should not have put the tree there. Well, was it really loving for God to tell them that they couldn't do anything? Or that's our sin coming out. We don't like authority. I don't like authority. I might be you know, a professing Christian and I'm trying to live for the glory of God, but you put authority over me and my flesh is going to start to puff up a little bit more. And I'll be like, I know that's what you think and how you think that should be done. And you're wrong. This is actually how it should be done. Right, that's our pride within us. Our, the dust within us does not leave us, even though we have been redeemed by Christ. Okay, so we see authority in a bad way, but do you understand the goodness of what God just did? He said, I've given you everything that is good to see and everything that is good to taste, and you need to hear me. There's one tree in all of the creation, in all of the good place, that you do not need to touch or you will die. That is good on God's part. It's why we tell our kids not to play around outlets. It's why we tell them to stay away from fire, right? This morning I was, I was ironing and, and Kenley was worried because I was touching the, the shirt that I was ironing and I told her, no, the shirt's not hot. It's the iron. It's this metal part. Never get near this part. It will burn you. That was not unloving of me. That was loving. It would be unloving of me if I'm walking, uh, if we're going hiking, my family and I, and we're walking through the woods and I'm in the front and I see a snake coiled up right here ready to strike and I go past it. It's unloving for me to tell them, y'all come on, everything's going to be fine. It's more loving to say, y'all need to stay back. You need to be careful because this could attack you. It's loving to put good restrictions there. That's what God was doing. Everything he did for them was good. And Adam can eat. I don't know if you got this. He can eat of every single tree in all of creation but one. And it's that one tree to which they ultimately gravitate and go. By the way, if he'd eaten the tree of life, that, is, that gives unending life. There were two trees that, that had special distinctions. One gave eternal life and one would bring death. And Adam and Eve ultimately go to that. And you know why? I think it's this. Because dust craves dust. The dust of us, the, the, the natural part of us, it is drawn to the depravity of this world. It is drawn to evil. There's something in us. But here's why God was, was good in that. Why would God say don't? Because the Creator knew what was good, and He also knew that if Adam ate he would have knowledge of one thing now that he had never had before. He would begin to know evil. All Adam knew was good. There, there, I mean, you think about the whole creation. There was no evil in any of all creation in existence. And now he would be able to think in a new way. So, so I wrote down some thoughts. What, 
what depth of shame would he develop by just knowing that evil was possible? Right? We can, we can see a commercial come on TV, and before we even see part of the commercial, we as parents are fast-forwarding because we know what the potential is. He's now going to know that potential if he eats of that tree. What inventions of indulgence would Adam begin to explore by eating of the tree? And what evil might he devise? And what good would any of that do him? And so God lovingly said, eat of everything but not this one. Now God's goodness is displayed in that he provided everything Adam needed. And then he also said, you do not need this one thing. Stay away from this. And now the, I just want you to consider that's probably the pattern of our lives as well. And then we're going to be on to our last verse. But consider that isn't the pattern of our lives as Christians is that God has given us everything good. He's reconciled us back to him. He promises that everything he does is good for those who are called according to his purpose. And he says, do this, don't do this. Make sure you walk in this way and do not walk in this way. And yet we see the pattern of Adam and Eve and sin and the indulgence of evil echoing through our lives as well. But we are not. I've heard it. I've heard some say, well, if I were there, I would have never have done that. Oh, absolutely. We would have. They are the perfect parents for us. Had you and I been there, we would have done the exact same thing. And God would have done the exact same thing. Genesis 2.18, final verse for us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Did you notice? Everything now has been good. Everything has been good. All of creation, it was good and it was very good. And now, for the first time, God says something's not good. And what is that? It's not good that man should be alone. So God's, here's his heart again, the creator's heart. He desires good for his creation, and he wants man to be in relationship with others. Right? And so what would be good for man? To be in relationship with another. And so God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you someone. And we're going to see next week that God's going to parade all of the created animals before him. And Adam's going to look at them, and while he might be in awe of them, he will name them, and so in, in a way that will give him dominion over them. But he's also going to say, no, that does not fulfill my longing. That's not exactly what I need. And then God's going to say, okay, then here is woman. And Adam is going to rejoice. I mean, he's going to be hooping and hollering. And we're going to see that there's that relationship. There's the institute of marriage. That's what we're going to start talking about next week is that broader scope. But there's one thing in all of creation that was not good. And God realized that man should not be alone. He needs someone to come alongside him. Now in this context, y'all, the context is that God is going to create Eve. And we're going to see that first marriage that I've already alluded to. But in another context, it is not good for you and I to be alone as Christians. There is no lone wolf Christianity in the Bible. It's unbiblical. We have to be together. We're meant to be together. We're supposed to run alongside one another. So that's what we want to cultivate in cross life. It's a little bit, uh, it's maybe a little bit uncomfortable at first if you're not ready for it. But whenever, you, whenever you're at cross life, you're going to be known. And we want you to know us. We need to be investing our lives in one another because if we aren't, then it's easy for someone to drift. And whenever we begin to drift, we begin to find that we've left the one that we love. <clears throat> the old hymn says, prone to wonder, prone to leave the one I love. 
But I'm telling you, if I'm living life and I've got, I've got Bo and Brian and Jared and Daryl and Brad and, and, uh, and Matt and Andy and Mark and, and Mac alongside me and, and they're saying, man, are you good because I'm seeing this? Or, man, I know you've been struggling with this. Where are you? And whenever we're doing that kind of life on life, then I think that it affirms that it's good for man not to be alone because we need that accountability. We need that help because this life is entirely too hard to do on our own. There are too many Christians who say, I don't need anybody. It's just me and God. That's all I need. I don't see that anywhere in this Bible. Instead, what we see is that that we need one another. We need one another in the original creation. Absolutely. Broadening that context and applying to our life and where we are today. This is why churches need to gather. Whether large or small, whether... whether, Never mind, I won't go there. Whether large or small, whatever context that God is choosing to gather believers in, we need one another. It's why we're the body. It's why we're the temple. Everything pulls together. So there's only one thing that that wasn't good. And my point for 218 was a good God desires even more goodness for man. That was his intent in creating woman, more goodness. Here's a garden it's good for you. Man, you are good. I've created you. Here's every tree and fruit. It's good. Do not do this because it's not good, because I have better plans for you. I have a goodness for you. And here is a woman because she is good and everything's going to be good. We need to remember that everything that God did and has done for us is good. And if we believe otherwise, it is the sin and pride within us. So Genesis 2, we'll, we'll continue on. But y'all, my, my desire is that we remember again and again and again that God is good and we are not. We need his goodness. And anytime we doubt it, it's us. <clears throat> Listen to Revelation, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Listen to Revelation 21, verses one through five and, and y'all see if there's not just such comfort. And actually, I think I, I go on past five. I don't know why I stopped there. But just listen to this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So, y'all, this is what is going to happen. This is what we're waiting for. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I, God, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, y'all, if you're thirsty, he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers, the one who endures to the end, he will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And then he says, But for the cowardly, For the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. And so you might say, well, why in the world is that part comforting? Why is any of this comforting? Yeah, because in the end, God will set all things good again. There will be no sin in his presence. There will be no darkness in heaven. 
one day he will wipe away every single tear from your eye. He will, he will remember your mourning. He will remember the pain. And he says, it will not be here in my presence ever again. So what God began, he will redeem fully. And so until then, y'all cling to him. And when you can't cling to him, know that he's already clinging to you in Christ Jesus. He holds us close even now. And you might say, I don't feel it, but y'all hear me on this just because I've walked alongside plenty of people throughout the years. Don't confuse your feelings with your faith. Let your faith be sure. And though your feelings are wavering, don't trust feelings over faith because your feelings are fickle. That's why you have a great moment right now. And two hours later, you're having a you're just down or you're great today and tomorrow and the next day are horrible days because feelings are fickle. They're subject to change. Don't trust your feelings. Trust your faith. And your faith should say God does all things good and he's bringing me home. And when he does, no more tears, no more pain. No more suffering. Nothing ever again except for his goodness towards me. You know, we, we can't answer the why God does what he does. We don't know. We can't. But we can take great comfort in the goodness of him. You know, he's purifying us in the way that only he knows how. And, and how does he know? Because he created us. We're dust. He's not. And he knows best. That's the God that we get to pray to. It's a God that holds us. It's a God that sustains us. Lord God, I pray that, that as we return to Genesis, that we have a renewed and more clarifying picture of who you are. You're not a God who, who created all things and then stepped back and walked away as the deists believe. You're not a, a God who just said, here's an idea for my creation, and now I'm going to punish them, as so many other religions have believed. But you're a God who is unlike any other. You're a God who existed before anything else in all of creation. And all that you did was good. Lord, I pray that we are encouraged and that we keep revisiting your goodness and that it helps to, to shape how we think of who you are. Lord, may we take great hope that you're not a distant, cold God, but you're very close and very comforting and very good. You're the God that we need. Help us to live in light of that. Amen.